everyone, welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India and South Asia and find out what makes them tick. I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. So, we have really, really exciting news. From this month onwards, Chennai Live, the radio station, will be airing our trending episodes. It's going to be aired on their radio station as well as on their app. So, here's a big shout out to all our fans in the South. Yeah, I mean, it's such a blast from the past, right, Tara? Like, I remember listening to FM during my school days and and radio was such a big part of our lives in the 90s. I'm so glad, you know, like, being back, get to be a part of it. Yeah. Right, we're back on the radio. And uh, by the way, Spotify, you know, it's the end of the year and we also found out that Spotify did an annual wrap for podcasters and we found out that we're trending in four new countries. Uh, So that's amazing. That takes our total trending uh, countries to 27 and our followers have also increased by 109%. Yeah, thank you so much. Without you all, we would have not been here today. So today's episode is a very special one. It is our bonus episode. Yeah, so what we decided to do is we decided to speak again to Manu Pillai who started off our podcast uh, with with his episode and it's one of our most listened to episodes. He's a Sahitya, for those of you who don't know, uh, he is the Sahitya Academy Award winner. He has four amazing books to his credit. His latest one is called False Allies and covers the lives of royal princes through Raja Ravi Verma's paintings. Yeah, so we actually wanted to catch up with him, right? Because a lot of writers have explained to us over the seasons about how much their writing has changed during the pandemic. So we wanted to know what it was like for Manu. And because, you know, most of our listeners are history buffs, we decided to do another episode with him. This is a bonus episode where we're going to catch up with him. We're going to have a lot of fun, funny, interesting questions. But for a more in-depth episode on Manu, be sure to also listen to Season 1, Episode 1. Hi Manu, welcome back. It's so good to uh, speak to you again. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back here with both of you again. Yeah, and we had actually begun Season 1 with one of your episodes and it was a super hit. So we wanted to speak to you again and now we are four seasons old. And I think by the time we're out with our next season, you will have written another book already. Right, Tara? Yeah, you know, uh, thank you so much. You actually one of the, you were the person who kicked off our podcast. We had no listeners at that point and we recorded with you and it's done really well. So thank you so much. And- I'm glad to be of service because I know that, you know, the podcast has been doing really well. And I've been listening to a number of episodes. The last one I listened to was Raja Tobekar's, uh, which was, you know, I think it came out a few uh, months ago. And yeah, so, you know, this is wonderful to be back here. Although considering that you, you guys pound me of much information the first time round, I'm very curious to see what you'll ask this time. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, and thanks so much for listening. We wanted to know a little bit more because when we recorded, we recorded in a studio and it was before we even knew what the word pandemic even meant. And now things have changed uh, so much, but you have still managed to put out your new book, False Allies, which, you know, as you say, these are research heavy books, heavy books. And it's amazing, Michelle, and I was speaking that you are able to, you know, work at this consistent pace. So Last time when we spoke, we had asked you if fiction was in store for you. And you said sometime in 2024. Uh, But I really want to know, because of the pandemic, have things changed? Has your plan actually changed? What has it been like for you? 
Well, it hasn't changed much because, you know, for uh, for a person who anyway works from home, as it were, the pandemic didn't upset professional matters anyway, because for me, staying at home chained to a desk was not a new thing. In fact, at some level, I welcomed it because after my third book, Cortesan Mahatman, the Italian Brahmin came out in 2019, I'd been traveling far too much. There was this uh, day in February, I think, last year, where I was in three cities in one day. So I took off from Bangalore in the morning, I think, spoke at an event in Nagpur and then came to Pune in the evening. And that's when I realized I've been traveling far too much and I really need to get back to actually sitting down and writing and doing my work. So far from the pandemic toppling my five-year plan, it allowed me to get back on track, get back into writing and, and do a whole chunk of writing last year. It's, you know, first draft, this kind of thing, it's part of my PhD research and the writing of the thesis and things like that. But even so, it was just useful. It was only, I think, a, well after a year into the pandemic that I started getting this itch to, okay, you know, now get out and see the world and be around people. But for about a year, I was perfectly happy sitting at home, you know, and, and not having to go anywhere. The only thing I missed, sadly, is the, the fact that, you know, book events, readings, festivals, where you actually get to see your readers, you know, you're filled, you're in a room that's filled with people, there's an audience, you can sense the pulse of the, the, the listeners, you can sense if your uh, answers are having any kind of impression on them. All of this, it gives you feedback, you know, and it keeps you on your toes. It's always much more fun to do that. Online events, you know, they, they're a bit uh, tiring after a while. They, they can seem a bit repetitive after a while. So that was a bit disappointing. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, the pandemic was actually productive for you. That's true. I think we've spent a lot of time indoors and that, uh, you know, it gives you that space to really concentrate. Um, and I also noticed that you did an in-person launch, uh, right, for False Allies. It must have felt really exhilarating um, after a long time. Um, so I was curious, did you all time the launch of the book, uh, you know, so that it would happen in person or what was it like? Well, it, that hall where, you know, I always release my books in Bangalore at Gallery G, which is, uh, it's a tradition now. All my books, have the first launch has been done there in Bangalore. And usually that hall holds about 200 to 300 people even. You know, the last uh, book I launched in 2019, I think we had close to 300 people. There were people everywhere. It was such fun and frankly great for people's, like the writer's ego to see a hall full of people. Uh, this time we had to be much more circumspect. We had to restrict numbers to 50. So it was a much smaller physical event. Everybody had to be double vaccinated. It was by RSVPs only. And, you know, there was a lot of rules and formalities, etc. But we decided that, you know, it was worth doing it. We were taking all the precautions we could. And I'm glad to say that nobody came there with COVID and nobody ended up leaving with COVID. We, we haven't heard of a single case from that event. And in a sense, it's a way to start, as I said earlier, you know, getting used to maybe going out again, maybe doing events at a, at a smaller scale and hoping that the pandemic eventually dissipates. It wasn't planned. The book release wasn't planned for around that time. It was just that, we got lucky. I know that earlier in the year, a lot of books were delayed because the second wave came out of nowhere. And everything that was meant to be published over the summer got pushed by multiple months. And that upset publishing schedules. It upset uh, the plans that authors had made and, and, and a great many other things. But in my case, we had anyway decided to, do, uh, uh, the, to release the book in September. In fact, I'm planning more in Kerala and, and Bombay and uh, other cities, but probably in December and January. 
Oh, amazing. That that is lucky. And and please let us know about the events in Bombay. Uh, you know, we'd love to attend. Of course. Yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, last time you, uh, you spoke about your writing routine for the courtesan and the Mahatma. And you also mentioned that your writing routine differs from book to book. So can you tell us how different it was writing False Allies versus your other books? Um, and what was your writing routine for this one? Well, False Allies, since you've read the book, you'll know that it's about the princely states and maharajas. And uh, from a historian's perspective, it's about breaking the cliche that the princely states were all about dancing girls and elephants. And uh, there was serious politics going on here. There was serious business going on here. And many of the major rajas were actually quite interesting political figures, not, you know, idiotic despots who wrapped themselves in silks and lay on silk cushions and gave arbitrary orders. Uh, so, of course, I was very keen, keen to make it clear that this was the argument of the book. Usually, if you look at my first book, The Ivory Throne, for example, it it has an introduction, but the introduction is just a sort of, it, it leads you into the story and it constructs the context. And then the arguments, etc., in the book come much later. Whereas in this case, I decided I want the argument in the first introduction itself, then the five chapters covering five princely states, each uh, as a kind of case study, and then the conclusion which reiterates several of the points made in the introduction. There's a time when earlier in your writing career, you're always at some level keen to impress. You're keen to sort of make sure that your audience loves the book and all of that, which is important. It's important to keep the audience and their appetite in mind. But all the same, with this book, I think I haven't gone out of my way thinking that, oh, you know, everything must impress everybody in, in a certain way. On the contrary, it's the argument that matters. It's the writing, of course, has to be of high caliber, but it's also about the argument. In that sense, I suppose it's a slightly more serious volume. Compared to Courtesan, of course, completely different style. Courtesan was a, a collection of very short essays. The introduction to that was just one paragraph, if you remember, whereas this is, is very many pages. So, and this is, I think, a 550-page book. So it's it's a much heavier book. The other thing that was different was also that I've woven Ravi Varma into the story, the artist, which meant there was a lot of reading around him, around his style, around his art tradition, around the paintings that he did, reading up, you know, the work of art historians and things like that, which was relatively novel territory for me. I'd, I'd worked on Ravi Varma before as a historical figure, but I hadn't really looked at his art as a source of history before. So, for instance, when he, the way he poses a Raja, you know, the exact pose in which a Raja appears in a painting, that's always planned. It isn't happenstance, isn't, it isn't something that's left to chance. There's actually meaning there. The books that you may see in the background, uh, in the frame, that has a political meaning. Uh, the temple gopram that, may, that you may see further in the background, that has a certain significance in the painting. And I realized that his portraits were not really just about likenesses of uh, fancy people. They were actually also a means to signal certain political messages. They were certain means to make certain political statements, which meant, you know, discovering that about art, discovering that about Ravi Varma's art in, in, in particular, all of that was very interesting. It was new. It, it meant engaging with a new set of materials, a new set of writers, a new set of scholars. Plus, of course, the usual uh, things that come into historical research, which is your multiple sources, the National Archives in Delhi, the archives, uh, so archival sources from as far as Scotland, America, newspaper archives, local libraries, your Asiatic Society in Bombay. They have a wonderful digital archive now of all their old stuff. All of this comes into the picture. And then it was, yeah, that, that took a while to uh, get together. 
Yeah, and and I'm curious, uh, you know, like because there's this fascination with Raja Ravi Verma, and we also spoke to uh, Dipanjana Pal, who's you know written about his life. I want to know, you know, what about other painters in in that uh, royal era? Why why Raja Ravi Verma? Well, there were very many other painters. I'll give you an example. When Raja Ravi Verma went to Udaipur, which was around 1901, there was a local artist there called Kundan Lal. He was a very talented man. He came from a family of painters. He had even gone abroad on a scholarship and studied at the Slade School in London. So he was, you know, technically a very gifted, talented, promising young man. And yet he was always treated by the local ruler as something of an artisan. Whereas Ravi Verma was received as a celebrity, as a nobleman, as somebody who could claim higher prestige. And one of the reasons was that Ravi Verma did not come from the usual communities that painted, uh, that that painted or followed various artistic pursuits. They were often considered lower in the in the caste hierarchy. For example, as I said, they were often treated as craftsmen or artisans, not really as artists in the in the sense that we know the term today. Ravi Verma, because he came from the aristocracy, because he was related to the Travancore royal family, his sisters-in-law were the Rani's of Travancore. His granddaughters became the Rani's of Travancore towards the end of his life. Uh, his family, his own ancestors, were the Rajas of Bepur and Malabar uh, in till the 17th century. So he was very well connected in that sense, and many Rajas, etc., saw him very much as a social equal. So when he was commissioned to do an artwork, it was not like the others where they would get a fee and that would be it. In his case, there would be a much higher fee. Plus, there would be prestigious gifts, necklaces of pearls, silk robes that rulers used to give to their noblemen and others. Even elephants, you know, things like that were given to Ravi Varma. So it was not that he was perhaps the most talented figure in his day. There were plenty of other people who had talent as well. But he was somebody who was, in some sense, a, a, a sort of complete package. He had all the advantages of a high birth, of a high station in life, of the fact that he had got an English education, moved in Western circles also with great ease. He had charisma. He was therefore very much a man of of, of high society. That meant that he, wherever he went, doors opened in a way they did not for other artists. Of course, he had to hustle. He had his uh, uh, his his years when he had to work really hard and actively reach out and seek patronage. But even so, he had certain advantages. And I chose him because you know there were five hundred and sixty two princely states in the official number that you see. Even if you reduce it to the main princely states, that's about uh, one hundred or a little over one hundred princely states. And I don't want to do a general textbook. I really wanted to explore a few princely states in depth because you know each of these are diverse. Each of these are different. And in terms of selecting states from a lumber as large as 100, uh, Ravi Varma came in handy because he began his life in a princely state as a royal relative and a princely subject. And through the course of his career, he worked not just in Travancore in Kerala, but Pudukota in Tamil Nadu, Mysore in Karnataka, uh, Baroda in Gujarat, Udaipur in North India. So he sort of went all over the place. And I was able, by using him as a connecting thread, shortlist five very interesting and very distinct and different princely states, and make my larger case. The book is not about Ravi Varma. It's just the world in which Ravi Varma operated that is the focus. That was that angle is so very fascinating because you can take you know multiple angles to look at things, and it reminded me also of Amitav Ghosh's latest book, The Nutmeg's Curse, where we start with you know uh, something as simple as the nutmeg, and then go on. Um, and I also really liked it because I've studied art history. So it was very interesting to see how that plays in. Um, last time we had spoken a lot about, you know, all of these powerful women 
in your books and how you highlight them so um, you know you do do this this time as well so could you maybe narrate for our listeners the tale of jamna bai well you know this i must say that this book is is one book that i've done so far which is relatively female light the the main figures to a great extent are men and you know the five states it's their maharajas that are the focus largely because it was often men in control but you're right i do try to point out there's one chapter on royal women and how they you know they've certain they had to negotiate morality politics these character certificates that the british were trying to give them all kinds of issues like that and of course several of them were extremely powerful political operators in the sense that we often think of royal women stuck in harems gloomily or in a very sensual setting their life is you know like it's like living in a gilded cage you've got all this privilege and luxury around you that's the world we see of royal women and the british often put out this cliche or stereotype around them that they were just sinister figures in the shadows intriguing plotting and and, and doing all kinds of wicked evil things but a person like jamna bai tells you exactly how royal women saw themselves also as political figures being in the harem did not mean the harem was some domestic space the harem was also a political space in jamna bai's case you know she's the the daughter of a village headman she comes from a family of high pedigree but her family lives in very modest circumstances a village headman's daughter um at the age of 13 she's picked up and taken to baroda because the maharaja who's a good he's, he's almost 40 years old much older than her he's you know been married twice doesn't have an heir therefore he's looking for a new wife who might potentially give him a son and she gets chosen and suddenly this young teenager from a place called rahimatpur becomes the maharani of baroda now what happens is that he passes away within 4 years of their marriage and she at less than 17 or less than 18 is is uh, a widow the problem baroda do is that the maharaja and she still do not have a son the maharaja has got a brother and the brother is a slightly problematic figure and jamna bai does does something very interesting she announces that she's pregnant it's interesting because you know in the 1880s there's a british officer who actually complains that widows across india and in royal families have this habit that every time a maharaja dies without an heir they can declare themselves pregnant and by doing that delay the question of succession and by delaying the question of succession they give themselves a potential say in politics they create a space for various factions at court to realign themselves and come to new arrangements and essentially they play politics now what happens with jamna bai is she is pregnant within a few months she she has her baby unfortunately for her the baby is a girl which means her husband's brother becomes the next ruler jamna bai is of course she's got the option of staying on in baroda in the harem and becoming a non entity you know there are plenty of royal widows in the baroda harem she'd just become one of them which she decided she didn't want to do what she did instead was her husband had given her a lot of jewelry and money with all this money she leaves baroda and comes to pune pune is in british ruled india and in pune is where the journalists are there's a new class of nationalist emerging and all of that there are these strong networks there were there and she starts using her money to manipulate both the british and the maharaja in baroda her brother in law so she sponsors complaints against the maharaja by bribing people on the ground in baroda you know landlords farmers whoever just go and complain to the british about the maharaja at the same time she's also manipulating the british because she's bribing the british resident who's like the local representative in baroda of the british government she bribes his own servants his own employees to fan his animosity against the maharaja the result is that of course there are other issues also but this enables after a few years uh, a situation where the maharaja is deeply unpopular there are all kinds of complaints being made against him many of which are of course 
sponsored by by Jamnabai. The British don't like him and they've decided to get rid of him. And ultimately, that's what happens. You know, they get rid of him. Jamnabai comes back in triumph to Baroda. And she says that as the Dowager widow, as the ex-Maharaja, the previous Maharaja's widow, she has the right now to nominate a successor to the throne. The British and she come to a compromise where they will select a few candidates and she can choose whichever one uh, she likes. What's interesting here is that so much for her having earlier manipulated the men around her, white as well as brown, now she sees a common uh, you know, uh, goal with the British, which is both of them want a young boy, not somebody older. They want somebody young in their teens so that they can manipulate the kid. They can make sure that the kid grows up and remains submissive to both of them. The British want the kid to be submissive to the British Empire. She wants the kid to be submissive to her so long as so that in Baroda, her power is, is paramount. Uh, so she and she, uh, along with the British, they adopt Sayajirao Gaikwad III, a boy of 12, who was still then living on a farm, a very distant Gaikwad relative of the royal family, living in, in a village near Nasik, put him on the throne. And of course, he grows up and becomes his own man, learns very early on how to flout the British and ask them questions and stand up to them. In fact, his career, uh, the very many decades that he was on the throne, he was not at all popular with the British, who at one point even considered deposing him because he had got that out of hand and was actively considered disloyal. But even with her, when she realized that having grown up and having taken power, he was no longer submissive to her, he was no longer listening to her, she decided that she would play politics again. She went out to the British and said that he's definitely not been listening to you, and he nor has, been, has he been listening to me. And in quotes, to put an end to his self-sufficiency, they should essentially give her all the power in Baroda and make her a, a supreme authority over the Maharaja's head. Of course, by then, the British had decided that they didn't want that because all said and done, they still had this Victorian prudishness and her, her private life gave them some jitters and, and they were not uh, very pleased with what she was doing in her, in her own time. And her plan did not work. But even so, she was not a pushover. She had to be given a large allowance. She had her own separate darbar. She lived in her own place. She traveled where she wanted until her death around 1898, if I'm not mistaken. She was still a very significant force in Baroda. And that it's a way of demonstrating that a woman technically living in Parda, technically living in a harem, technically uh, with the entire ecosystem around her stacked against her, can actually still manipulate it, still control it, still make efforts to to uh, seize power. And ultimately, that's what she her life tells us, that she didn't see herself as a woman, as a Maharani, as somebody who's supposed to constrain her role to the domestic sphere. She said that I am a Maharani, I am a political sphere, a political person, and that is my platform, that is what I want, power is what I seek. Thanks so much for narrating this incident. I was, uh, you know, very, very engrossed in it. Have you considered starting a podcast? <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I, get, I get asked this every now and then, but no, I have not so far. Because yeah, it was actually like listening to an audiobook, book, na, Tara? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I would, I would listen to a podcast, but anyway, you know, it just yeah. made me think um, that it's so nice that all of these stories are coming out because you more and more see uh, women displaying agency, uh, especially in books like Ira Mukhoti's Daughters of the Sun. Um, and even in historical fiction, I recently read uh, Chitra Banerjee's book about Rani Jindan. Um, and though obviously a lot of it was fictionalized, these books gave women ambition. Um, you know, it showed that uh, they wanted power um, and showed them in very different light than what we're seeing right now. So that that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And 
and I actually like the tug of war that you mentioned, Manu, you know, between the British and her own people, uh, which was which must have been really difficult to navigate. We, we do know that you've done a lot of reading as research for the book, but what have you read for fun? You know, what's your pleasure reading? Well, I've, I've had some pleasure reading, but not as much as I would have liked. I'm currently reading Shrayana Bhattacharya's Desperately Seeking Shahrukh. We're releasing, she's releasing the book in Bangalore later this week. And I'm sharing uh, you know, space on the stage with her and helping her with the discussion and things like that. It's a very interesting book. Uh, I've been reading some fiction, but frankly, if you ask me now off the top of my head, I'm not sure if I can remember uh, any of the names because I read so much for work. There's so much reading for research that leisure really is often fiction. There's there's this completely frivolous but totally fun novel that I read. It's it, it's a pink cover. It's about this American president's son who falls in love with the Prince of Wales, I think. Is that royal blue? Yes, yes, something like that. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. pink, something blue, yes. But the thing is, with all this heavy reading that I'm doing during the day, before I go to bed, I do often want something lighter, something that's just easy fun, that's just refreshing, that that can make you laugh out loud, even if it's completely silly and completely soppy. It it really does take the edge off, you know, from all the work that's done during the rest of the day. Um, there's Tarana Khan's book that I read, which is about a courtesan in one of these Nawabi courts of northern India, which is again a, a book of uh, fiction. I did read the Rani Jindan book as well. Uh, Harper Collins, I think, sent me a very nice hardback edition in a box with a little bit of atar and all of that very nicely done, wow. <laughs> which uh, which was, again, wonderful to read. It reminds me, you know, when you said the light reading, it reminds me of, you know, uh, I do this with like TV, TV shows all the time. So I watch a lot of sort of like these romantic comedies and stuff like that. And it completely just shuts your brain off because the rest of the time you're so serious and you're engaging with serious material that you do, you do need you know that uh, sort of just something fun to immerse yourself in. I agree completely because in fact I when people ask me what I watch on Netflix I never tell them because it's completely embarrassing <laughs> hopelessly hopelessly lame stuff and terrible 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 shows it's just as you said it, it, it just helps unwind at the end of a long day yeah exactly so um, you know you're quite active on Instagram, and I follow you, and you have a huge following, and you know very interesting things. So uh, you know, it, what effect does your social persona have on your writing, if any at all? I don't think much. If you see, you know, I, I usually post when I'm traveling. Very rarely do I post selfies and things like that. Very rarely is it about me. I very very rarely post anything from my workspace, from my home. These are completely private spaces as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, you know, there's there's certain lines that I draw there. But even so, Instagram really, I'm not very active on Twitter. Twitter is usually where I retweet things and everybody's fighting on Twitter anyway and calling each other names. So I'm not interested in that platform in any serious way. Instagram is much cleaner because uh, they, there's, a you know, it, it's images. People can send you nasty messages, but because it's not visible, people don't get performative about it. So it's, an, it's a platform I, I prefer because I find it healthier. Uh, like today I got a random message where somebody called me, uh, I, I, I essentially put up a notice saying that I was cancelling some book events this month because of a, a personal thing. And they were like, oh, how could you betray us this way? And there was this Malayalam word that was used, which was quite strong. And I thought, gosh, what is this response? You know, I, oh I wouldn't cancel things if, if I, you know, if I could help it. It's just because it's an unavoidable situation. But I use Instagram even so as a form of 
stress relief, if you can see what I mean. Because again, much of the day I'm seated at a desk in front of a computer screen, sitting down. And it's one room, one place, a silent room. That's the kind of universe I inhabit on a normal day. And Instagram is my one outlet every, say, one and a half hours or two hours, just going on Instagram and posting something frivolous or putting up a status or just doing something on Instagram is my way of keeping things light. Because I, I don't like to take myself too seriously. I don't like to lose all sense of humor. I don't like to start thinking that I've somehow become this highly uh, serious kind of figure. Uh, so Instagram helps me engage with that lighter side of things to engage with the lighter side of my own personality and all of that. Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, Instagram has its um, hold on us in in its own way, right? We're all addicted in some way or another. So what's next? Because we do know that you're working on something. At the moment, I really have to get a lot of work done on my PhD because the, I'm in the final stage where one has to actually sit down oh. and write one's thesis, which is not light work. That's actually pretty intense. And, and the kind of writing it requires is very different from the, the usual writing that I do. Uh, the audience is very different. The style is different. You have to be much more to the point. Every word, every uh, sentence has to be carefully constructed because you have a, a fixed limit within which the PhD thesis, everything, the notes, the bibliography, all of that has to be uh, within that limit that has been set. So that's going to keep me occupied for the next one year. I do have something else in the works, but it'll be a while before that I can resume work on that. Oh, best of luck with that, Manu. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So this brings us to the most fun part of the conversation, which is our signature rapid fire round. So we have chosen the theme before the pandemic versus after the pandemic. So Manu, you have to tell us in one word what you think about these things, uh, basically before the pandemic and versus after the pandemic. All right. So the sure. first one is consuming serials and films. Steady, I think, throughout both phases. The best meal you have had. This has nothing to do with the pandemic, frankly, but in Florence, uh, several years ago, there's this tiny little cafe that's tucked away and they have, and it's very tough to get a seat there they, and you get 45 minute windows, I think, where, where you can go and sit and they have this wonderful uh, roasted chicken thing that is, that was a delicious meal followed by a delicious dessert over there. Sounds amazing. Okay, so moving away from the pandemic, three accounts you follow on Instagram. Actually, I follow this very interesting actor called Roshan Matthew, uh, who seems to be not just appearing in interesting movies and demonstrating that he has a lot of talent, but also seems to be a very, very thoughtful, interesting person. Uh, I follow a number of history groups. There's a group called Karwan, which is run by a bunch of kids. Uh, I shouldn't call them kids. I'm not being condescending, but they're really young. They're essentially 20 year old, uh, you know, college students, if not younger, and they're doing such good work. And they're so enthusiastic about what they do. And they get such good people to come and speak uh, on the Carvan platform. And of course, I follow a whole host of writers. One royal dish you wish you could recreate. Oh, you know, the Maharani of Travancore's husband, way back in the 1920s or so, he used to go, uh, every time there was a, a, a wild you know, man-eater or a rogue elephant or something, people would call him to you know, attack and, and shoot the elephant or shoot the tiger. And he would go, and apparently on these trips, he would sometimes end up spending a couple of weeks even in the forests and end up living with the local tribes that were there. This is, of course, in Kerala. And he, the story goes, came back with a kind of teal. Teal is this dish we make in Kerala. 
and he came uh, with the, came back with a kind of theory that the tribal communities in in one part of Travancore used to make and ever since then he introduced into the royal kitchen this tribal dish and it became a part of that royal kitchen and the family's tradition and ever since then i've been very curious about what this tribal theory was i've never so far uh, been able to taste so thank you so much uh, manu i am not entirely convinced i must say that you know you were probably expecting much more rapid rapid fire whereas my i was rather professorial and slow but so that's your strength i I'm, think no this is this is this is the aging boring person no not at all and as i said <laughs> you know if you started a podcast i would definitely listen because you're really good at storytelling but yeah thank you so much it was so it was so good catching up with you and uh, congratulations on the book um and yeah i'm happy to see you happy and well after the pandemic thank Not you likewise pandemic. and i hope both of yeah. you have very many more episodes a lot more seasons coming thank out you. and the podcast continues till you are old and <laughs> becoming more and more grave and serious in life i really enjoyed this episode it was very different from the others wasn't it yeah i mean for me i think the catch up thing was was a very um different experience i think we should do this with more uh, authors tara yeah and manu really has a way of telling stories i mean i know that even for last time we both felt like we could listen and listen to him narrate historical tales <laughs> all day but unfortunately <laughs> there's a time limit to these things but uh, you know this was a really fun thing and stay tuned because this is a bonus episode but we have a full roster of in depth amazing interviews coming out season 4 it's coming soon early next year you're going to be surprised delighted we had yes. a roller coaster of a time recording it and uh, just look out because it's going to be amazing yep i mean we are going to be covering different genres and if you know you love today's episode please do let us know if you would like us to catch up with any of the authors that we have covered so far please do write to us we are at bound india on all social media platforms